EU Confidential gets started right after this message. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Italy has voted, and there's one name that seems to be on everyone's mind. Georgia Maloney. 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 Georgia Maloney is poised to become Italy's first female prime minister. She's the leader of the Brothers of Italy party, a far-right political party that is expected to lead the most right-wing government Italy has seen since World War II. Four years ago, the Brothers of Italy got just 4% in the last general election and Georgia Maloney looked like a bit part player. How times have changed. She's now... Critics warned that her leadership could drag Italy into populist policies that run counter to EU values. But Maloney has brushed aside this narrative in various interviews with international media. Four days I uh, have been reading articles in the international press about the upcoming elections that will give Italy a new government, in which I am described as a danger to democracy, uh, to Italian, European and international stability. None of this is true. So what is true? Who is Giorgia Maloney? And how is she expected to shake things up in Italy and in the EU? I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's Chief Brussels Correspondent and your host of EU Confidential. This week, everything you need to know about Italy's election and what we can expect from Giorgia Maloney. We'll also get more details on the damage to the Nord Stream gas pipelines. And we turn to the US in a discussion with Stavros Lambrinidis, the EU's ambassador to the United States, to assess the ongoing relationship between Brussels and Washington and where tensions remain. Many people in this country and elsewhere underestimate the EU consistently. It is one of those things that I actually, as an ambassador, also have to deal with. In addition to the compliments, I also have to deal with every single crisis that has hit us the past 10 years, people wondering whether or not this is the time the EU will collapse. That's coming up later. But first, let's talk about the Italian elections. I'm joined by Politico's senior EU reporter, Jacopo Baragazzi. Hi, Jacopo. Ciao. And Hannah Roberts, our correspondent based in Rome. Hey, Hannah. Hi. So let's dive into Sunday's Italian elections. Hannah, uh, what are the results? What are we looking at now? Well, the right-wing coalition 
led by Giorgio Maloney's Brothers of Italy, took about 44% of the vote. So while that doesn't look like an absolute majority because of the Italian electoral system, they will have a majority in the Houses of Parliament and they should be able to form a government. So that's a coalition made up of the uh, far-right Brothers of Italy, the business-friendly anti-immigrant league, which is led by Matteo Salvini, and good old Silvio Berlusconi and his Forza Italia in the centre-right. Yeah. And you wrote a very interesting piece this week, Hannah, about how this alliance came about. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, the parties on the right have been in and out of alliance for more than 20 years. And they usually, while they might argue between elections and have uh, divisions, they normally get their act together in order to run together for the elections. And this is a very successful formula for them. Back in uh, 2018, they had done a deal where whoever got the most votes would be the candidate or be able to nominate the candidate for prime minister. But this uh, was not yet confirmed for this election until after Draghi's government fell. So there was a kind of crucial meeting with all the right-wing leaders who had to decide whether they were going to go ahead with this agreement now that a woman looked very likely to be at the head of that and a woman from the far right. Yeah. Jacopo, coming to you, so we're hearing about this right-wing alliance. What do you think has been Maloney's secret here? How has she managed this to get to the top now of the Italian political system? It's not the first time that it's on the right that we have a woman becoming Prime Minister, um, Angela Merkel, Margaret Thatcher. It's uh, Maybe not as far right, though, as, as Maloney. But, yes, right, I, I, but you see what I mean. Absolutely. There's been a history of conservative yes, uh, yes. female politicians Look yeah. at the UK. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And uh, in her case, uh, for sure, the fact that uh, her party was the main one in the opposition has uh, been the key factor. But uh, she's also managed to be credible for her voters. She didn't overpromise. I mean, in Italy, there have been uh, several of these cases in the last 10 years, you know, of these figures that are brand new. People vote for them. So we had uh, Renzi, then we had Salvini, then we had the party of Grillo. Uh, so there is also the novelty factor. Yes. So on the one hand, again, the main party in the opposition. On the other hand, the element of the female prime minister. And then thirdly, the novelty factor. And the novelty factor... Again, in the last 10 years, we saw it several times happening. These uh, parties getting 30%, 35%, but then losing their consensus very quickly. Yeah. And Hannah, tell us a bit more about Maloney, about her as a person, about her as a politician. What kind of platform has she run on? So she is very right wing and it's not a liberal right. It's a nationalist right. So her aims are to defend the traditional family Italy's borders and Italy's national interests through, for example, protectionist measures for business and to assert Italy's sovereignism over European sovereignism, although she's more careful on that. She likes to define herself as a conservative, which was a word that wasn't much used in Italy until recently, like the UK's Tories. But I see her more as kind of alt-right. And of course, she has these connections with the American right. She spoke at CPAC, that annual meeting of conservatives in the US. So she, she very much aligns herself with that element of right-wing American republicanism. The true Europe will not give up. The true America will not give up. We will be awakening many more like ourselves. And there will always be more of us. They will try to take everything away from us, but they can't take away 
who we are. And you know what? Hannah, could you tell me a bit more about what policies she campaigned on? What promises? Well, Mileni pulled together a manifesto from all the right-wing parties into a single manifesto. And the very first promise was to remain loyal to the EU and NATO, which was quite surprising to have kind of foreign policy as the first point. But this was part of her operation to reassure the EU and NATO. Primarily, she wants to lower taxes. She says she wants to defend Italy's borders by blocking boats and really differentiate between economic migrants and refugees. Uh, She says she wants to defend the family. That's through free nurseries and policies that would help women get back to work after having children and to defend Italian interests in general, whether that's business against globalisation and uh, within Europe. Yeah. I mean, of course, one of the other concerns here in Brussels is about what this means for the Italian economy. Obviously, there are lots of residual concerns about the state of Italy's economy. Italy is the third largest economy in Europe. We remember 10 years ago, all those fears about the state of the Italian economy, its debt levels, etc. Jacobo, what has been the reaction here in Brussels so far to this uh, strong performance by Maloney in the elections? I mean, it's very clear to many in town that there is not much space for Italy to play the nationalist card, meaning that uh, the country is so fragile from the point of view of the debt, from the point of view of energy, it's uh, an energy importer, or from the point of view of migration, it needs the rest of the EU, the solidarity of the rest of the EU to share the migrants, that uh, don't many really expect that uh, Meloni will have really the strength to try to really take very strong lines and then be able to implement them again because the country is too fragile to try to play that kind of tough game. Yeah. For the time being, the main reaction in Brussels, it's a wait and see. But because there is a difference between Meloni and Salvini, they know already Salvini. Uh, Meloni is new and they know they see Salvini basically as a Putin's friend. As with Meloni, she has managed to avoid being put in that corner because when in the past she was against the sanctions on Crimea in 2014-2015, but then when the war in Ukraine erupted, in February, uh, Meloni was very supportive of the sanctions and of the NATO push uh, there on Ukraine. So she has managed not to be put in the same basket uh, with uh, uh, Salvini in terms of being a friend of Russia. And then if I can add something, there is a third element, which is the discrepancy between how the foreign press in Brussels see her as far-right, post-fascist, as in Italy, she is considered simply right. <laughs> and it's increasingly a gap that we see in the perception. And there's also a gap due to the fact that, uh, uh, for example, in September 2003, Berlusconi, who is a member of the PP and will now be part of the government, described Mussolini as a kind of uh, a very soft dictator. And I'm quoting him in an interview to The Spectator. He said that Mussolini didn't kill anyone, which is completely wrong mm. and false. I mean, the EPP, they're referring to the European People's Party, that centre-right group here in Brussels. Um, and speaking of his interview, Berlusconi's comments to The Spectator, we saw Melanie doing an interview with the UK Spectator, uh, Hannah, ahead of this election because she's been trying to get her message out there internationally to rebrand herself and her party, in a sense, to say that she's not this far-right figure. I mean, how has that... Pure attempt gone down. 
I think not very well overseas, outside of Italy. For example, that Spectator interview, she obviously chose the Spectator thinking it would be sympathetic because it's a fairly right-leaning publication. And I believe the headline was something like, is this the most dangerous woman in Europe? Yeah, yeah. So there's been a lot of emphasis on the post-fascist roots of her party. And it's kind of a discussion about whether that means that she herself is a fascist or if she has links to them. Yeah. I mean, one of the issues, Jacopo, here in Brussels has been this concern about the state of Italy's economy, as we mentioned. But ultimately, though, there is a feeling, will she actually roll back many of the changes that uh, Draghi, her predecessor, promised? Because after all, Italy is in receipt of billions of euros of EU money and and she knows that. Yeah, she knows very well that and at the same time the centre-right is not the first time it's in government and the last time it was in government in 2011 they had to leave office because the centre-right was bringing the country on the brink of default and was replaced by a technocratic government. So the memory of the last centre-right government is still very strong among the centre-right people but also in the markets. And so she has to try to do everything possible to show that this time will be different. Yeah. And she'll also, of course, be a member of the G7, of the G20, you know, an important figure in EU politics. Hannah, what happens next now in terms of the formation of the new government? Well, there's going to be a period of time, say, I think about 10 or 12 days, while the three right-wing parties negotiate amongst themselves and look for ministers that will be part of the new cabinet. And the consultations with Italy's president, who actually formally appoints the prime minister and the cabinet, will only start after about the 14th of October. Consultations normally last three or four days. In this case, there might be only one round since the right-wing coalition are reasonably cohesive and they already have a shared manifesto and they're doing a lot of the pre-prep now. So we could be looking at a new government at the very beginning of November. Okay, so quite a bit of uncertainty to go. Just one other issue, Jacopo, that's come up here this week has been new developments on the energy front and reports now of a gas leak emanating from the Nord Stream pipelines. Fill us in on what's been happening there. The best definition, I believe, comes from a minister that yesterday said that this could be a new step in the hybrid war. Because uh, although it's difficult to really find evidence that uh, Russia did it in town, that's what everybody thinks. But again, the attribution is going to be complicated. Of course, this will be another point in the discussion on Friday among energy ministers. And it could be a new step in the conflict. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, interesting that we've seen reaction from Ursula von der Leyen, from the prime ministers of Denmark, Sweden, all promising a robust response, all saying it could be sabotage, but not mentioning the Russia word. So let's see what energy ministers discuss on this when they gather in Brussels on Friday to talk about the energy measures they are trying to take to try and tackle this European dependency on energy. So thank you very much to our panellists, Jacopo Baragazzi and to Hannah Roberts in Rome. Thanks very much. Thank you. Coming up is our conversation with Stavros Labranidis, the EU's ambassador to the United States. So stay with us. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Earlier this week, Political's Lily Byer sat down with the ambassador of the EU to Washington, Stavros Lambronidis, at the EU's delegation in the US capital. You are in a very unique position of representing 27 different governments here in Washington. What does your daily work look like? (laughs) Well, I represent the EU. The EU, of course, is comprised of 27 different member states, but the EU also has exclusive competences, such as trade and others, Uh, but also a convening power of a member states. We saw in the case of COVID how, although health was an exclusive member state confidence, uh, it very quickly became a European coordination. So I have to say honestly that there's not a single topic in the world agenda that is not a topic of the bilateral EU-US cooperation and work. So how is my life here in the States? It's busy. And it it is for every EU ambassador. Uh, But depending on the political climate, it can be different busy. Under the previous administration, as you know, there was quite an, uh, an amount of rhetoric about the EU, not particularly positive rhetoric. And, uh, and there, what, what I had to do, what we had to do was to play more defense without being defensive, make th- sure that things uh, you know, didn't get uh, worse, but also be able to explain uh, to the administration, to Congress, to the public, the tremendous importance of the transatlantic relation. Under the Biden administration, uh, the emphasis has changed. Uh, now, uh, you know, the administration wants to work with us on everything. And, and now you don't have to play defense uh, as much. You have to play offense. And, and by that, I mean, you have to be able to show, to demonstrate the EU's readiness to bring to the table very concrete proposals that are promoting European interest and American interest together. And that's precisely what we managed to do back in December of uh, 2020, before even the new administration took office, by bringing out a proposal, a 10-page proposal to the administration of what exactly we as the EU thought the main areas of cooperation should be. That was supremely appreciated. People realized at the time that the EU was um, not just bringing skin to the game, but in fact demonstrating a unity of purpose, a strategic understanding of the world uh, that very much aligned with the need of the American administration to move from isolation to multilateralism, and this is why we've managed in the next, in the past uh, year and a half to initiate so many things. That's super interesting. Is there one event or conversation that really stuck in your mind as sort of symbolizing the difference between your experience in the Trump era versus the Biden era? Well, I suppose you can think of a number of them. But I will tell you that um, when it comes to Ukraine and the war in Ukraine, this administration has been extremely positively surprised initially. 
by the way that the European Union managed to show strength and unity when it came to sanctions. They do understand that it is a unanimous decision of 27 leaders in the EU as opposed to a decision of one president signing a, a paper uh, that could make that happen. We were faster in many of these sanctions than the U.S. administration even was, even under the circumstances. And the compliments I received from the administration, from Congress, from uh, think tanks, from people in the public, I think were extremely warming to me. I was not necessarily hearing a lot of those compliments in the past, uh, but it is this remarkable understanding of the American public, no matter what their political party affiliation is, that the security of prosperity of the United States and of its citizens depends more on the EU than on any other country around the world, outside of whatever it is the U.S. government can or will do. That understanding, I think, is so firmly ingrained now in the system that I believe that it will last for years to come. So the U.S. and Europe are coordinating very closely on Ukraine, but there are still rather relatively significant differences in terms of what the U.S. is providing in terms of arms and supplies versus what some European countries are willing or able to provide. What sorts of questions are you getting on this from American officials when you go to events or receptions around town? I am only receiving gratitude for the EU support, uh, to be honest with you. For the first time in our history, we actually provided EU military support, two and a half billion up to now, more to come probably, to our member states to be able to support them in giving arms. And then, of course, in addition to that, member states are giving additional arms and lethal weapons to Ukraine. Uh, of course, the United States, uh, as a big military power of its own, is providing even more military support. But what the U.S. understands as well is that the financial support that we're giving to the Ukrainians uh, more than $7.2 billion up to now, together with our member states around $13 billion, uh, more to come, that that aid, combined with the American aid, is allowing the Ukrainian government to keep schools working, to keep police working, to keep all the administration working. That is depriving Russia from the capacity to destroy the country in Ukraine through a thousand small cuts, which they were hoping to, in addition to the big bad bombs. And that is hugely appreciated. So I have to tell you, I do not receive complaints at all. And what also Americans understand and appreciate is that the major heavy lifting in this war is done by Europeans. You cannot defy gravity. We're next to Russia. Whether it has been energy imports from Russia or whether it is the millions of Ukrainians who have left the country in the past few months to come to Europe, this is something that has been affecting Europeans and Europe much more directly, much more gutturally, whether it is because of 10 times higher energy prices or whether it is because of the need to house and to school and to give health care to 8 million Ukrainians. These are tremendous costs that the United States doesn't really have to share in. And that kind of burden sharing, therefore, across the Atlantic is something that I am getting a lot of positive feedback on. And then moving on to a subject that's on everyone's minds this week, energy security this winter. Um, the EU is mulling a price cap on gas. Are there any discussions on plans or, or plans underway for the U.S. to provide emergency LNG cargoes for Europe this winter? Well, yes, there are such discussions. Uh, although within the U.S. itself, the discussion of putting a cap 
on their prices is not one that you're having or you're listening at. But we already look at the storage capacity in Europe. Uh, we are close to 85%, more than we had actually asked ourselves to be by this time. A lot of that gas has come from the U.S. The U.S. has exported, uh, is exporting now about 60% of all its gas to Europe. Last year, that number was 30%. You're seeing a remarkable increase of LNG imports from the U.S. Uh, you're seeing us investing in infrastructure to be able to uh, take care of all that new LNG. But you're also seeing in Europe that infrastructure being developed in a way that can then take in hydrogen. So we are not moving for a second away from our green goals. Uh, Europe does not have massive fossil fuels as the U.S. does. Our own security and, and, and energy independence depends on homegrown energy, and that is renewable energy. And we are moving as fast as we can, and we're even increasing our targets for renewable energy in spite of Russia's war. Many people in this country and elsewhere underestimate the EU consistently. It is one of those things that I actually, as an ambassador, also have to deal with. In addition to the compliments, I also have to deal with every single crisis that has hit us the past 10 years, people wondering whether or not this is the time the EU will collapse. In the financial crisis, I told them, you know what, you want to lose your money? Just put it on the bet that the euro will collapse now because... According to your theory, it's a monetary union, not coupled with an economic union. And, you know, those who actually put their money there lost it. Uh, in the case of the uh, migration crisis that we had after the Syria war, same questions, same challenge on my side to them. Brexit came and everyone was saying, oh, is this the time that the EU will collapse? And of course, not only did it not collapse, but our citizens in all 27 member states are indicating in higher numbers that they are supporting their countries and their own belonging to the EU. The COVID crisis hit. And there again, people were saying, well, is this the moment where Europe will show its cracks? And in fact, once again, Europe showed even more strength and unity for the first time, in fact, also borrowing together as Europeans in the next generation EU to invest in tech and in green as we're coming out of the crises. We've taken every single crisis, including now the Ukraine crisis, and turned it into an opportunity. That is the EU. Never, ever bet against us. The uh, congressional midterm elections are coming up in just a few weeks. Are you concerned? I about thought you'd never ask. <laughs> um, I'm sure this is the first question when you give your other <laughs> interviews around here. Are you concerned at all about how the results could impact the relationship with the EU? No, I'm not. And the reason I'm not is in addition to the fact that uh, we don't know how it's going to come out, but uh, many of the topics that we're dealing with are topics that we're dealing with the administration or at state level, which is a very, very important thing for us, but also because we have made sure that the relationship between the EU and the U.S. is very strong at all levels and, frankly, uh, with all political parties in civil society. To give you an example, uh, even during the, the hardest times in the trade relationship between the EU and the U.S. a few years back, some of the biggest supporters of the European Union and that relationship were uh, not just Democrat, but also Republican senators and congressmen and women. This didn't just happen. It happened because in our job here in the U.S., we are focused on outreaching to everyone. The same thing goes for think tanks in the U.S., which, as opposed to other parts of the world, they have real power to determine the the direction of the political conversation. We are coordinating, cooperating very closely 
with think tanks of all political stripes in this country. And the state level is huge. When there was an issue and a topic with the Trump administration moving away from the Paris Agreement, we immediately, as an embassy here in Washington, reached out. We had we were doing this before, but we intensified our, our reaching out to different states, governors, and others who were committed to the Paris Agreement at the state level. That kind of work allowed us to make sure that even though at an administration level there were issues, in fact, the U.S. as a country, in states that represented close to 70% of the U.S. GDP, was moving still towards the climate goals that we had set together. So this is my job. Of course, a job that requires a very high-level political contacts and, uh, and successes. But it also involves a huge amount of ants' work, the kind of stuff that you would never put in a press release. Now, if I put in a press release, political will never publish because it would make everyone fall asleep. Could you give us an example? No, I mean, the meetings I had with state governors talking about what it is in a granular level that they can continue to do on climate and how it is that we can actually work with Europe with them. The delegations are brought from different states, but also from the U.S. Congress to European member states and to Brussels to look at how exactly we do tech innovation when it comes to green uh, technology. All those things are those thousand points of activity that in the end create the big flashlight of hope when it comes to this cooperation. But each one individually doesn't make a difference. The instinct, perhaps, of many people is to focus on the big stuff that can grab the headlines. But if you just do that, if you just do that, good luck, because it's not going to work. Unless you do the ants' work, uh, and that's also what Brussels does on a daily basis, the contacts that the European Commission, the External Action Service, have with the U.S. administration, Congress, states, every day, countless, I can't even begin describing, that builds the trust and the actual cooperation. That makes a difference. That I will continue to do. Even that means that in times of COVID and after COVID, this delegation is going to be one of the busiest that I've ever seen. Thank you so much for your time, Ambassador. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Lily for bringing us that conversation from Washington. And that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be coming to you from Prague Castle, where EU leaders will be meeting for an informal summit. So be sure to follow the podcast wherever you're listening so that you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from our listeners and you can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Thanks this week to Julia Poloni and to our Politico US colleagues, especially Afra Abdullah, for their help with this week's recordings. Thanks, as always, to our editor, James Randerson, and to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.